Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon here in New York City. And uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you may be. We hope you're feeling well. And we're so glad that you joined us today. I'm so excited once again. It's just a thrill to be here every week. But today is a, a very special show for me because I want to let you guys in on my daily conversation, basically. I have in the studio with me an old friend, a dear friend, one of the original members of my group, Earth Driver, but we go back even before the Earth Driver days. I have in the studio with me a great artist, a great man, a great activist, and a very dear friend, Craig Blue. Can you introduce yourself, please, Brother Blue? Say hello to the PRN family. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Craig Blue. Excellent. So, yeah, Brother Blue is an all-around fun guy to hang out with. He's a very smart guy. He has a lot of opinions. Um, he has his own point of view about any number of subjects. Uh, he might ruffle some people's feathers, but we're not too concerned about that here today. We're going to have a, an uninhibited conversation, and we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about the state of the black community. We're going to talk about the sexualizing of our children. We're gonna talk about the medical freedom movement and our experience as unvaccinated individuals in vaccine crazy New York City, which was called Vaccineville for a couple years there, or felt like a couple years, however long that mandate period actually encompassed. But um, let's start out with Brother Blue, I want you to explain to folks a little bit, just to sort of set the context of the conversation we're going to have. Mm -hmm. Explain to me, what do you mean when you describe yourself as codified? Okay, when I say codified, basically I'm um, referring to the teachings of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, who had conversations with a man named Neely Fuller Jr., and he wrote the Independent Compensatory Guidebook for people who are victims of racism, white supremacy. And upon writing that book and meetings with Neely Fuller, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing then proceeded to write her book, which was the ISIS Papers. So from Neely Fuller Jr. to Dr. Frances Cress Welsing to the Honorable Dr. John Henry Clark, um, Dr. Ben, um, Dr. Amos Wilson, Dr. Joy DeGruy Leary, um, there's a development of an idea, an ideology called codification, where um, basically the impetus is if African-Americans develop a code of conduct within the system of racism, white supremacy, they can, they can navigate racism, white supremacy, um, being less terrorized, being more informed, better educated, so that they can pass on education and information about justice. Excellent, excellent. Great description there. So, yeah, see, that's the thing, folks, is that we come from a perspective, and this is Brother Blue and myself included, we come from a pan-Africanist perspective. Mm -hmm. We're largely informed by the thoughts of the great black nationalists. Mm -hmm. John Henry Clark, who Brother Craig Blue just mentioned, was a huge influence in my life. I mean, I, I saw him speak actually at the Native American Playhouse when I was 15 years old. Okay. And that was a milestone in my life. I mean, he made so much sense out of things that it just, it was like a before and after point really. Because sure. I grew up 
being proud of my African heritage, I went to Africa, I went to East Africa, I went to Kenya when I was three years old, which is a brilliant thing that my family thought to do, to take me on a journey to Africa when I was three, sort of right when my memory was forming. And I still have these memories from when I was three because it was just such a mystical experience and trip. But I always grew up fascinated by Africa with an admiration for Africa. But then when I saw Dr. John Henry Clark speak, and it was on Columbus Day, so it was a very interesting talk by him that day because I also have Cherokee blood. Uh, my grandfather, who my son is named after, my grandfather, the great Marcus McBroom, his grandmother was Cherokee, full-blooded, and he grew up with her on a farm in Ohio. So okay. um, when John Henry Clark was putting so much context to Native American civilization, African civilization, and the, the depth of that, the wealth of that, all that's been hidden, it was just mind-blowing. And then that evening, I actually had the honor of walking him up the stairs because actually, you know, he was visually impaired. He was blind. So um, I had the honor of just helping him walk up the stairs to mm -hmm. his home, which is now uh, named after him, John Henry Clark Way. And I think, what is it, 137th Street, I believe, is John Right on Henry. Convent, right, yeah. next, right next down the block from um, City College. Yeah. So, you know, John Henry Clark is just a, uh, is a monumental figure. And, um, you know, that's the, sort of the background that we come from. And, you know, it's a strange situation that we're navigating now. I was just mentioning the blue on the walk over here, is we have the backdrop, the, the steady backdrop, which is racism and white supremacy, which is sort of the ide ideological underpinning of American society. But then on the other hand, there's this sort of what I consider this sort of irritating, sort of weak, sort of lukewarm, sort of limp wristed racial dialogue that's mm. being used now to manipulate people and to sort of pull people into the Democratic Party, for mm. instance. And it has nothing to do with the original teachings of our leaders who I don't really think we need new theories per se. I think we need to go back and check our progenitors. I think we need to check our forebearers because they already really spelled out most of what we need to consider in regard to the nationalist discussion, the pan-Africanist discussion. Of course, we can always add, we can always contribute, but first you need a firm basis sure. before you start extrapolating and improvising, right? I. We have this conversation daily. Uh, we've been having this conversation for 30 years. But because we started out with a great foundation, I saw myself, I saw Dr. John Henry Clark at um, FIT in 1991. I was part of the Black Student Union. And graciously, we invited him to come speak to the student body. And he did. That was when he was also losing his sight. I did a portrait of him right there, like a really quick portrait, gave it to him and his assistant, his family member. Wow. And, um, you know, not just reading him, but then seeing him in purpose, in person and listening to his concepts, to his content, to his ideas and how he expressed them. It only makes you want to just be better read, um, speak better, understand definitions so that you can navigate better. So, and the conversation that me and you talk about often, you know, you can name things woke movement. You can talk about critical race theory. But once again, the foundation has already been set. We can go all the way back to Chancellor Williams. We can go back to Sheikh Anta Diop. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
one of the great authors who outlined Hubert Harrison. There you go. You know, that outlined these, you know, a foundation of black revolutionary thought. Um, we can go to the Black Panther Socialist Party that outlined revolutionary thought and action. This is why we have a breakfast program in public school systems today across America because of the black and Latino Black Panther membership Socialist Party. Right. You know? So we have that rich tradition, and then we have this sad thing that we observe every day, mm. which is how we're falling short of that legacy. And we see our community, and I just want to make a testimonial right here and just kind of take the, the moment that we have here on these airwaves. I mean, I've described as a caller on PRN, calling into Utrecht's lead show, calling into Gary Knoll's show. I've sure. given firsthand accounts of what I see in my community. And, you know, it's not really something to glorify whatsoever. I mean, it's it's sad. The black people in Harlem are in a lot of pain. I mean, of course, we have great folks in Harlem. We just came actually from Rock Mill Fitness. I want to shout out Rock Mill Fitness real quick. Write down this number, 917-709-3438, 917-709-3438, because I want you to call my friend Milton and schedule your first appearance at his fitness class called Rock Mill Fitness. That's, mm -hmm. for example, one of the great you know, things you might find in the community of Harlem. We have musicians, we have artists, we have a lot of good folks. I'll say, first of all, if I walk down the street with my son, I could just literally walk like a block and a half and the love that I get has my heart just warm. Sure. You know, people say, hey, how's it going, brother? Hey, how are you, young man? And they'll greet me and my son. I'll get greeted seven times by strangers. Sure. And I'll say, wow, that is so much love. Like that's, I've traveled all over the place. That's not something you get everywhere. In this rough town, you know, this rough part of the city, there's all this love, but then there's the rough stuff. There's the crack vials all over the playground mm -hmm. and all over the sidewalk. There are people you see wandering the neighborhood in, you know, in, in terrible physical and mental condition. You see people just laid out on the street just destitute, face down. I mean, the other day I saw, I took video of it. It was so astonishing. I just keep like a small record of some of the things that go on in my neighborhood. Sure. And I saw one brother, I mean, he looked like somebody, he looked like he was being police brutalized and there was no police. He had his own arm hiked up his back as though someone was trying to break mm -hmm. his arm. He had his own face pressed into the ground as though someone was on his had a knee on his back. It was unbelievable. To, and I've seen the brother all the time. I've seen him many times. But this day was bad. He was rolling all over the streets. Mm -hmm. And less than 20 feet from him, there was another man rolling all over the streets. I mean, I don't know if they took the same drug, but they were both having episodes and they were so out of it like i said they were probably not even 20 feet from each other and they didn't even see each other they these two men were in alternate dimensions so that's just on 125th street in lexington that's not even making your way over i mean sorry 125th and lennox i meant to say not even making your way over to 125th in lexington which is like an open air asylum at this point i mentioned i called in to Gary's show a couple weeks ago to report that I saw a woman sitting there with her crotch exposed, sitting on the ground, handcuffed behind her back, next to a pile of garbage, 
with a bunch of cops, male and female, just kind of standing around. I didn't know what they were looking for or what they were waiting for. They didn't formally arrest her and put her in a vehicle. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you had, it was at least a dozen cops just sort of standing around with this woman who's clearly having some sort of psychiatric episode, handcuffed behind her back, crotch exposed, laid out on the sidewalk. I mean, what kind of condition are, are, are we in at this point? It's, mm-hmm. it's horrific. You know, I mean, you live in Co-op City. You live in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit more of a community sure. feel. Yes, yes. For example. That's Made a, to be that. Right. Made to be that. Exactly. Right. Yep. But you're in Harlem all the time. Yes. And you've been in Harlem, you know, on many, many occasions over the years. Lived in Harlem. Right. You've lived in L.A. You've seen the black community. Across the country. Across the country. Yes. Right. So, I mean, what do you have to say about what you see on a day-to-day basis? Well, growing up, being born and raised and growing up in the Bronx, 180th and Southern Boulevard. We lived there in that neighborhood between 180th and like 183rd Street for like for the first 10 years of my life. Then we moved to the Northeast Bronx. But and then as becoming a, a young male, a young adult male, and reading more, becoming more informed. Um, my first books were W.E.B. Du Bois and um, The Souls of Black Folks and um, Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X, um, uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Those are the, the seminal, the first three seminal books that changed my whole perspective. It mm. took me out of the hood and expanded my, you know, expanded my consciousness and expanded my ideologies. And then coming into people like Dr. Joy Group Leary, who has a specific theory, she calls it post-traumatic slave syndrome, because traveling not only the, throughout the country, but also throughout the world, specifically where people of African descent live and reside, that she noticed similar behavioral aspects and um, behaviors amongst people of African descent across the world. So she had to start theorizing, like, why do I see this behavior? And basically, you know, just to bring it, you know, make it smaller and more layman's terms, that black people were suffering from years, decades, in fact, millennia of, of mental instability, mental trauma that's never been addressed within this system. So when you have generational trauma being passed down from generation to generation, and it's never addressed. It's not addressed by the school system, it's not addressed by the social workers, but then there's also in that an, a continual assault on the mind, on the spirit, on the spirituality, on your philosophies, on your communities, and I mean literally physical assaults on your communities through drugs, through miseducation. You get a community that's really out of sync with its self, with its culture, with its, you know, its cultural aspects and its code, you know? You can look at other communities and see that they have a code of conduct, a code of celebrating traditions that keeps their children out of danger, for the most part, that keeps their young people from having unprotected sex, which runs rampant in our community, which they don't have as many single parent households as we do. Mm -hmm. They celebrate more traditional things, not just American holidays, but things based on their religious traditions, things based on their political traditions, you know, that keeps them more insulated. 
So so let me let me yeah. so you just you just got I mean, it. Just, you just reminded me of some fun stuff that I definitely want to talk about since you're in, here, in, which is you know my brother right here. He has a particular axe to grind when it comes to the American holidays. Oh. <laughs> He's just not fond of the holidays, and you know the type of thing that Blue has said over the years is like you know there will be some atrocity that happens, and we hit the streets to protest from Amadou Diallo mm-hmm. to you know, Michael Brown to um, Trayvon Martin. We've protested, we've protested. But it's like, we protest, we say we have demands that the society stop with this, you know, indiscriminate killing of unarmed black people. And then we just turn around and celebrate Easter and go chasing mm. Easter bunnies and dressing up like Santa Claus and, and you know, mm-hmm. stuffing our face with Halloween candy. And, you know, I just have to say, it's like, I don't want to be a bah humbug kind of guy, but I mean, first of all, my first problem with the system of holidays and just the general calendar as it's presented to us is I'm just, I don't like their control of time. Mm. <laughs> I don't like them. They're, they're, mm-hmm. Why do they control time? If I have a day off, maybe I should be playing the electric bass all day and not dressing up like Santa Claus or Maybe I should be getting codified in some form or fashion. But instead, we're, we're pulled into these sort of meaningless things that are really commercial in mm-hmm. nature, that seem to be very contradictory in nature, don't really particularly make sense. I mean, like Christmas itself is just this weird hodgepodge of, sure. you know, pagan stuff from Nordic culture. And, mm-hmm. and then the red comes from Coca-Cola. They paid for basically, no, we're going to pay for Santa Claus to be red. We used to be green Mm -hmm. because we want you to associate uh, Christmas and Santa Claus with Coca-Cola and so on and so on and so forth. So could you get into your your theories a little bit about the American holidays and how they're used to keep us in the state (laughs) that we're in? Not a problem. Let's (laughs) let's go right in. Sure. So, you know. Part of my ideology for not celebrating American holidays, one comes from, first of all, Frederick Douglass, when he had that great speech about what is the 4th of July to the American Negro. Right. In front of Congress, in front of the White House, being asked to speak, and they thought he was going to give something flowery about the celebration of the 4th of July in 1776 and the American Revolution. And no, he countered that with asking an astute and profound question, what is the 4th of July to the American Negro? What are we celebrating? Going from there, then you get Dr. Barashango. So I'm always referencing, right, what we started out with, we have a foundation of, of Afri- Pan-Africanism, Marcus Garveyism, revolutionary black thought to bring about justice while we fight against racism, white supremacy. So I, I, you know, I don't mince my words. I use racism and white supremacy as synonyms. You know, they are the same word. They are the same thing. I don't walk around and say all white people are racist. That would be ignorant. That's too, that's too broad of a generalization. First, deal with people as they come individually, but understand that people are working within a system of thought, within a system of ideology. All Christians think alike. You know, all, most Muslims think alike because they have a, a, a basic ideology that they live from and they build their life, a belief system. But I stopped celebrating American holidays in the early 90s, let's say around 92, 93, uh, continuing reading and continuing learning outside of school, outside of college, as I was going to like FIT for illustration and things like that. Because what I found was that if I'm going to ask or if I'm going to demand freedom, right, if I'm going to 
go Robert Williams and, you know, Dixie Free Radio, Black Panther, Marcus Garvey. If I'm going to have those ideologies, I can't live in this dichotomy. You know, I can't live in, oh, I'm going to think politically, I'm going to think black revolutionarily, but I'm going to celebrate Christmas. And then when you start to research what Christmas is and where it comes from, it's like, well, that's not an African holiday. <laughs> if I'm going to, why am I celebrating 4th of July when 1776 had nothing to do with me when those same people, the so-called Americans, right, that came from Europe that had a fight amongst themselves, which is a very typical European thing, World War One, World War Two, you know, multiple conflicts between Europeans, you know, the, the children's war, the, you know, the war for Jerusalem. Why am I going to celebrate 1776 when 9 out of 10, because I was born here as a person of African descent, my family's from down south, 9 out of 10, my great, 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 great grandparents during 1776 was someone's slave. They was on someone's plantation. So I don't want to continue that plantation aspect and that plantation tradition of letting the slaves go when Massa says it's time to celebrate. It's time to go to church. So I have no affection or affiliation with the 4th of July. For Thanksgiving, I'm not going to celebrate murder. I'm not going to celebrate the tradition of American murder and enslavement. The indigenous people, Lenape, Cherokee, my great-great-grandfather, my dad's grandfather was Cherokee, half Cherokee, half African. I'm not going to celebrate a traditional atrocity and continue to perpetuate that idea as if I, don't, I can't read and I don't know history. I'm not going to celebrate Thanksgiving. That's not my holiday. Atrocities were committed on that day. I'm not going to celebrate Christmas. Um, Easter, what is Easter? How can I, how can I delude myself and, 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 you know, have this cognitive dissonance about Jesus, right? And then an egg and then a bunny. Right. And, a chicken egg from and a bunny. A chicken egg from a bunny. Like, I understand the historical context of, like, you know, the egg being a symbol of, of life and things like that. And we go into Esther and we can talk about the historical aspect of the goddess Esther and, you know, things like that, you know, woodland stuff and mythologies. But to put it all together and have children take off, I don't think black children need any more days off. I think they need to be reading and learning and their parents as much as they possibly can so that they understand when you're coming off weak, when you're coming off, you know, you can't ask for something. And then celebrate that thing. And, and Neely Fuller <laughs> Jr., right? Prisoners don't have any reason to celebrate. Prisoners. Right? Why, why is a prisoner celebrating? What are we celebrating on the plantation? <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped celebrating for now over 25 years. I do not actively celebrate American holidays. And Dr. Barashango, if anybody wants to look him up on YouTube, Dr. Barashango goes through each holiday and he gives you a historical content of each European mm -hmm. holiday and why he doesn't think the people of African descent should celebrate them. Right, and you mentioned something that I'd like to continue with also, which is this idea of black folks being caught between rivaling factions of white folks. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be something that just continues to happen in this American <laughs> experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like particularly with what I call the two-party illusion. Sure. The Democrats and the Republicans who are, you know, the Republicrats, basically, mm -hmm. two parties, which is really one party pretending to be two. Sure. And no matter who wins, the party wins. So you're one of my good friends, and I share with you in this. You're, you've, you've been 
at the forefront of this. This has been your thing for a while, mm -hmm. but you've been completely disenchanted with this grotesque political system. You didn't waste your time with it as much as most folks who try to think that they're doing something significant and they're lesser of two evils yeah. voting. Uh, you, you, as far as I'm concerned, you keep it real. You tell it like it is. And let's get into that. Tell me, what, what are your attitudes about voting in America? Well, I mean, this is a conversation that when we have, I don't have it with many people unless asked. Right. You know, um, because, it, you know, it's a sensitive topic. Um, historically, people don't understand it as much as I keep trying to understand it. So I'm always trying to learn and always trying to um, develop what I think I know. And being an educator, I'm never going to say I know everything. I always want to learn. You know, that's the reason for me enjoying education and seeking out academia and things like that and reading. But based on principle and based on historical principle and historical content, I cannot vote for the ancestors of my enslaver. I can't vote for another white person. You know, they have to have some strong political views and they have to actually don't give my community because, you know, people are brought together by similar interests. You know, um, Dr. John Henry Clark says that. People are brought together by similar interests. They share similar interests, and they vote on those interests. So if historically, continually, you know, the Republican Party was, was the, that was the first party that, you know, Africans um, aligned with before what was called the Democratic Party. So, and it's switched around, and it's been switched around, but... Until my community, until a politician actually delivers on the promises to my community, and I'm speaking of the African-American community in and throughout America, nationally, until those things come to light and we can see those things actually happen and they have an effect on our health care, on our community um, uh, education, on our community politics, on police brutality in our community, until those things are solved through actually voting, then I don't see the need to vote. Because then I won't, I can't then blame myself for the person I voted for that doesn't do anything for my community. You know what I'm saying? Joe Biden, literally Joe Biden in the 80s tried to run for president. He lied multiple times about his education, about multiple things. The white media dropped dime on him, was like, Dude, like, okay, we can only go but so far with you. And he admitted to lying. He's a career politician. He authors the 1994 crime bill under the Democrats, under saxophone-playing Bill Clinton, right. that devastated and imprisoned African-Americans across the country. It devastated. Devastated. To historical proportion, like devastated, by the way. To this day. You know, I mean. It's interesting. If you look at the. Why would I vote for him? The explosion And I don't vote prison. for evil. So I don't. The lesser of two evils, that's. That's, you know, a fallacious statement. It's a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. I don't play logical, you know. If you look at the explosion of the prison population, do there was ab about 300,000 people off the top of my head who were imprisoned under Ronald Reagan. Horrible. And somehow it became 900,000 by the time George H.W. Bush had his one term. Mm -hmm. And Bill Clinton basically had a one million prison population approximately that doubled to two million sure. in his eight years. And that, that's, that's historical on a global scale exactly. to incarcerate people at that rate. 
on a global for, scale. That's like and, so that, and that's my thing. And that's my thing too. Yeah. Like with the Trump phenomenon, right? We're, we're we are not Trump supporters, by the way. So don't go no. there because that's like a really corny thing that Democrats have fallen into. You must be a Trump supporter. But no, I'm not. So yeah, what that's do you weak thinking? It's, yeah. So so what else do you got for me? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't vote for him, and then I didn't vote for him again. So. I'm a Trump supporter. Why? Because I don't buy into a whole bunch of hogwash of what you have to say. But, you know, one thing that's crazy is like, you know, Trump was such a bad guy. He was a, a, a racist white male and he was the oldest president, actually. Amazingly, he's the oldest president to take the oath of office until Joe Biden. So we oppose Trump, who is supposed to be a racist, et cetera, et cetera. And who do we pick? We pick an older white male who authored the crime bill that was more devastating to the black community than just about anything in modern history. Mm-hmm. So where's the coherence there? And where's the diversity of your Democratic Party? There was no young black or Latino or Asian men or women in their maybe 40s, 50s, or even 60s with bright ideas. No, we got the crustiest most decrepit <laughs> career politician career politician that you could possibly find who like blue mentioned was expelled from the 1988 democratic primary for go. repeated <laughs> and flagrant plagiarism it should have ended his political career and it did not and it did not and, and talking about white privilege so his, his career fl- has flourished till he became president vice president <laughs> then president so never it, saw a war he didn't like by exactly the way. so if you know if we're going to talk politics and my good friends and family want to be like well if you if you don't vote you, you don't have an opinion that's ridiculous as t- well that's fallacious you know i don't like fallacies i don't like fallacious arguments it's like well then let's look at who you're voting for historically right. let's look at his political career and we can go from Hillary Clinton to Bill Clinton in Arkansas as the governor we can go to to and what and Joe Biden was in office and in politics through all of these presidencies behind the scenes writing bills that would devastate most definitely the African-American communities the Latino communities communities of color do you know and so I'm going to vote for him because he's going to be a better choice than Donald Trump no He's more destructive than Donald. He is a career politician. He has signed on to war. He has co-signed multiple wars under multiple And now he presidents. has us on the verge of World War III. He has With us. Ukraine. And unfortunately, Americans don't even understand why, why Russia, not advocating, but why Russia would not want friends of the United States on their borders. Right. With missiles. Given to them, 9 out of 10, by the United States because we're giving them money, right? So whatever missiles and whatever military they buy is funding by my tax dollars, right? right? And Russia is like, I don't want them on my backyard. The same way America didn't want Cuba having missiles from Russia in their backyard 90 miles off the coast of America. Right. So it's like, why are... The rank-and-file Democrats not taking their leaders to task. They never say, hey, we didn't sign up for this, man. We voted for you, but this isn't what we signed up for. They just keep going along for the ride. And the American population, if we were more informed. And all it is is about reading. You know, as an educator, but as an artist, I have to research things. I have to know what I'm drawing. I have to understand it on a more on a more profound level so that I can represent it. I can recreate it two-dimensionally or three-dimensionally. If we're making music, we, you know, there's people that came before us. I don't have to remake jazz. I don't have to remake blues. But I learn from those that came before us, and I find my own voice. So 
the less we know and we can put things into historical context, then the more we can get confused. We can be misled. And we can see from the way that our friends and family react to what we say, logically, that they can be easily misled, unfortunately, because then it can lead to you making decisions. That when, you, when someone puts you into panic, they can easily lead you into that idea or that psychological thing of mass formation where you make decisions not based on what you know, but based on the fear that they've implemented into your brain, right. into your ideology, into your belief system. Right. You know, I mean, this is what we talk about every day. It's every like, day. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, and one thing and one person who we have not been um, very fond of over the years is the, the peace angel Barack Obama, who, mm. you know, I've, I have particular issue with Obama because and people say, well, why? Why do you always go after Obama? And they, why are you singling him out? To which I respond, I'm not singling him out. I'm trying to lump him back in where he belongs with the other war criminal presidents. You're trying to single him out mm-hmm. and make him into something different, which he was not. No. And did the black community benefit from having a black president? No. No. Symbolically, you could argue, but not in terms of the quality of our community and our the quality of life that we experience. And in no. fact, all kinds of other. I mean, again, and it was repeated with Biden, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, Brother Umar Johnson made a good point where he said, Barack, o- not Barack Obama, but rather Joe Biden um, chastised the black community saying, you're not black if you don't vote for him. <laughs> he had the nerve to say that. Then turns around and introduces the, uh, you know, it was something with COVID in the title, the bill to protect Asians, basically, the mm-hmm. anti-anti-Asian whatever the sure. bill was called, and amazingly, bless them, the Asian community has the lowest voter turnout of all ethnic groups. So the group that you chastise gets nothing, who did take you over the top politically, mm-hmm. with black women being the most loyal constituency in the Democratic Party. Sure. But then you have Asian folks who vote at historically low rates being awarded with a bill. And like Umar Johnson said, I don't have a problem with that. But where's our bill? And then he proceeds to introduce a bill to protect transgender individuals. I don't have a problem with that. No. But where's our bill? Because he was supposed to be writing or coming up or formulating the bill for George Floyd. And that has just been pushed back. I don't even know if it's been signed or, you know, if there's been an act, a bill, a legislation for George Floyd. Right. And and Malcolm X covered this. He said, you guys are going to put the Democratic Party over the top. And I'm not quoting him verbatim, but I'm paraphrasing. He said, you're going to take the Democratic Party over the top with your loyalty and your vote. They're going to turn around and give you absolutely nothing. And you're going to go back and vote for them again. Mm -hmm. He said, well, that makes you a chump. (laughs) That makes you a chump. So don't blame me. Don't say that I'm being rough. I'm quoting brother Malcolm, which is another point. I feel like in our old discourse, the historical discourse that we admire of some of these great figures, Malcolm X, John Henry Clark, who was actually a personal minister of information for Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. You know, Malcolm X was out there speaking, and John Henry Clark was doing a lot of research and was conveying it directly to Malcolm. But when we talk about that era of people and that, that echelon of people, they didn't mince their words. They weren't mm-hmm. pussyfooting around in how they described things. They, they rolled up their sleeves and they got right into it. And now everybody seems to be too cool for school, you know? <laughs> no, people don't want to be bothered. 
that people we, back in the days, they used to say, preach, brother, preach. When, they, when you felt someone was starting to get the spirit and was, was inspired to say something, we encourage that person. Now we say, I don't want you to preach to me. Leave me alone. I want to play my video game. I want to upload something to Instagram. You know, we're, we're so much less disciplined and less serious, it seems, than back then. Well, you know, I mean, in that golden era of liberation, it's never to point fingers at our community because once again, we talk about the trauma. So our community is suffering trauma. So people who are suffering, suffering from some type of traumatic event really can't make I can't depend on them to make good decisions, unfortunately, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the same way I don't make, you know, depend on any of the children that I may teach or have come across in 30 years of teaching. I don't expect them to, you know, know physics and know how to play chess. I have to teach them. So I always come back to what was my responsibility and our responsibility. We did the best that we thought we could. You know, we, we you know, we on radio stations, we printed, you know, the Hunter newspaper, the Envoy. We printed things about Oda Benga and different historical things. We protested for uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal so that his sentence would be commuted. Right. You know, the death penalty for a Black Panther, you know? So we did the best that we could, and but once again, there has been a, a directive and a collective attack on our inner city communities. One, to make education seem less appealing, more difficult to understand, um, where many of our children decide they're just going to leave school. They don't wanna seek higher education. There's been a blemish put on you know, higher education, whereas in the beginnings of our enslavement and coming out of enslavement in Jim Crow, education was top priority. Zora Neale Hurston even talked about the, the dangers of integration because she came from an all-African-based, African-American community. They had schools, they had their own doctors, they had their own lawyers, and she saw the benefit of that because they learned about their history. They embraced their history from Africa to the Americas to understand what their responsibility to the community would be. So in this sort of megalomaniac, capitalistic consumerism that's been promoted through popular culture, it has become the individual that's more important than the community. What is my individual gain? How much gold can I get? How much platinum can I, can I accrue? How much, you know, how many cars can I have? Or the, or the basic human, you know, the basic, you know, average citizen, I need to just protect my family and myself until retirement, my children get to school, they're not terrorized or anything like that. So I understand it clearly, but you know, these are the issues. Yeah, and uh, Kyle, can you uh, start finding that clip that we, uh, we lined up? There was something I came across on Instagram this morning, and I said, uh -oh. oh, I wanna, I wanna play this on my show today. And it's just about what we subject our children to it's an interesting uh, little bit, and I want to use it to segue into this next little segment of our conversation before okay. we take some calls. Okay. Twenty-five-year-old in America, you pro. Rewind, yeah, yeah, rewind, because you got to hear that first little bit. Check this out. In the way we do. I don't know who this is. I mean, a nine-year-old boy in Gaza is more of a man than a twenty-five-year-old in America. You prolong adolescence to an absurd degree. You don't prioritize maturity. But at the same time, you sexualize your children very early. I mean, you've got like third graders twerking 
you know, and singing explicit song lyrics, and then you put that on social media for everyone to see. You're teaching kindergartners about sex, masturbation, about homosexuality and transgenderism. You think that prepubescent children can decide to have their genitals removed before they even know what they're actually for. You put little girls in beauty contests and try to turn them into, you know, miniature Beyonce's and Cardi B's singing about WAP. 12% of uh, 12-year-olds in the U.S. are already sexually active at 12. And that's from a study 10 years ago. So you can expect that the percentage is even higher now. 6.5% of them had actually already engaged in anal sex by the age of 12. The majority of sex offenders in the West victimize children. And they say about 90% of uh, sexual assaults on children are never even reported. So imagine what the real numbers are. No, you have a pedophilia problem in the West. And no matter how much you wish you could, you can't shift that over to us. We're not going to help you justify your sickness. Islam does not approve of this. So that's an Islamic brother. I, I, I felt that he was from Islam. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and he mentioned Gaza. He said a mm -hmm. nine-year-old boy in Gaza is yeah, more so of a man than a 25-year-old in America. First clues, sure. And, um, Let's get into it, man. Yeah, you know, one thing I have to say, and the reason why I wanted to play that clip is because it reminds me of a conversation that Blue was keen to before I was aware of it, and now I'm very aware of it because I'm a father of two young children. But I remember years ago, I was having one of my daily conversations with Blue before I went to teach chess downtown in the Battery Park City area of New York City. And Blue was just describing this issue that has been brought to his attention, something he was becoming increasingly aware of, which was just the sexualizing of children and how um, sexual content is becoming more and more part of the mainstream curriculum mm -hmm. where there's this assumption that it's appropriate to introduce children, even very young children, to sexual discourse long before they could possibly comprehend it. And, you know, he was then pointing out that, you know, if you start questioning some of this stuff, the a knee-jerk reaction is accuse you of homophobia. Oh, you're being homophobic, mm -hmm. to which we would respond, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear homosexual, heterosexual, nothing. There's no need, because when you say homosexual, as Blue pointed out at that time, you're making reference to sex, simply, sexual intercourse between people. When you say heterosexual, you're making reference to sex. Mm -hmm. And there's no need to discuss that with young children who are supposed to be, at least according to my understanding, in a more traditional point of view, which is shared among many cultures, which is that you would sequester children from such content. Mm -hmm. But somehow all that's being thrown out the window. And then after we had this conversation, I went downtown to teach, as I did every day of the week at that time in my life, Monday through Friday, teaching chess after school. And I get down to the school, and there's the rainbow flag it, as soon as you get to the elevators. Go upstairs to the fifth floor, big rainbow flag up there to pick up the kids. Go up to the seventh floor, rainbow flag. Mm -hmm. Teacher gets on the elevator, rainbow flag around the neck, on some kind of keychain or something around her neck. Get in the classroom, rainbow flag. And I'm thinking, wait a second, I didn't see Martin Luther King Jr. on every floor. I didn't see any reference to Native American culture or Rosa Parks or any number of things that you might reference in a diverse environment. 
And you know, I don't approve of it. I don't. I don't agree with this, especially as a father. Now, I'm. I'm going to be hyper vigilant about this because I don't want sure. these people discussing sex with my children for the simple fact, which I don't understand why someone would attempt to argue with me about this. They don't know what sex is, mm. and they're not supposed to. No, they're not supposed <laughs> to. So, mm. what's going on with this environment? How did you become aware of this discourse? Because you've been ahead of the game. Now there's more of this sort of uh, cultural tug of war around yeah. this issue. But you were very aware of this for a while, brother. Well, you know, once again in our travels, I'm a teacher. Um, my official term is independent contractor for art education organizations. So basically like a freelancer for museum education, after school programs, um, extended length art education programs in schools. And uh, it's been a it's been a, a nice career for me as an artist, you know, as a visual artist to make my money and to live. But what I started noticing, and then as I've and I've also lived in California for ten years from 2005 to 2015, and I taught there as well. So I've literally taught across the country, and I lived in D.C. for three years, and I taught in D.C. as well. And what I started noticing was our children were being a lot more were being way more openly sexual and and I started listening to their conversations you know yeah I was ear hustling and listening to their conversations and then as I was noticing that as I traveled across the country and taught children then I started noticing what was being promoted in popular culture mostly in popular music and unfortunately in what we call today rap and trap and hip-hop in our popular music which was a musical art form started in the Bronx for anti-establishment, anti-gang violence, anti-sexual deviation, anti-so many things, anti-violence. Let's do music, let's rap, let's MC, let's DJ, let's dance, let's make, let's make murals, and let's stop the violence. A total 360 in our popular cultural music that's being, that's being given to children and I started listening to these lyrics because I, I didn't have radio, I didn't watch television. But then when I started listening to what they were listening to, I was appalled at what children weren't taking into their brain computer. And it was horrible. And I just started to notice things. And that's really it. I just started to notice things. And then I started to notice, you know, what I thought was an agenda. I don't know if it is, but I start seeing legislation. Then I start seeing things implemented into the school system. You know, and I'm like, I'm not the person to be talking to someone else's child about sex and sexuality, and not a 10-year-old, not a 9-year-old. And then we get President Obama, and we see a huge shift there. You know, people should marry whom they want. I don't even know why the government's involved in someone who gets married, right. whether they're same sex, whether they're, just as long as they're not trying to marry children right. or animals, you know, in, right. my, in my opinion, you know what I'm saying? Right. But then something happened in this shift to where— it was thought that it needed to be put into schools. And I was like, are parents being informed that their children are being taught in, you know, sexual education? But it's not like put on the table, like we're gonna teach them sexual education, but we're getting all these different clues, all these different symbols that's talking to them about, you know, homosexuality, lesbianism, you know, bisexuality in the classroom. I'm like, I don't know where this is going, but you know, slippery slopes, man. 
<laughs> slippery yeah, slopes. So I'm, I'm, I'm not an advocate for slippery slopes. I, I feel you, brother. And yeah. I, I wish we had, you know, an hour to talk oh, man, and then an hour to take of, we're calls. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming up to and the I hope end I didn't, of the program. You know, no, 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 yeah. you, you, you did masterfully, brother. I just brother. like to be explicit. No, no, know? no, you, you did a great job. And not job. offensive. I don't, hey, you man, we, we, were, we were on pretty good behavior, I would say. <laughs> um, we have a caller on the line, but okay. first... I want to mention before we we take Phil's call. Phil is is one of our favorite callers, very uh, intelligent fellow who always has insightful things to say. But um, I wanted to just mention my brother Blue. Could you just mention because, like I said, I, I do want to stay consistent about the medical freedom conversation. Okay. You're working at the Brooklyn Museum. Yes. And you, like me, lost your job or were not invited back or released or whatever you want to call it. We weren't exactly fired. We were just not allowed to return mm -hmm. because we didn't agree to taking experimental drugs. Yes. And what was your experience with that? And what was your feeling about that? Well, I've been working with the Brooklyn Museum. I've been working remotely with the Brooklyn Museum. First, I started with them in their project research program while I was in school getting my master's, like the last semester, 2019, and um, successful. Love the Brooklyn Museum. I love working for museums in their education departments. Um, I work for the Guggenheim and the Bronx Museum of Art, and now the Brooklyn Museum. I have that on my resume, my CV. And um, during the height of COVID, was working remotely with adult classes and um, teenage classes, um, doing art, painting, and things like that. And then when um, the vaccinations were rolled out and President Biden was elected, um, when he said him and Kamala Harris had said explicitly and um, Governor Hochul that we we will not we, there's no way that we can make people take medical interventions. That's unethical. It's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Once President Biden became president, they started rolling out the mandates. So the Brooklyn Museum sent a letter to everybody and said, hey, we need you to get vaccinated. And I was like, hey, I don't know what this vaccine is in this vaccination. You know, I didn't tell them my politics about my distrust of America and, you know, me being African-American and a history of distrust and medical interventions right. and medical terrorism and right. medical, apar medical apartheid right. against people of color of African descent. I didn't go into that. I was just they gave me the option of a, a religious exemption. I presented paperwork and forms that said right now I don't want to get vaccinated until I know what's going to happen. I, I need to know more about this vaccination. And I don't trust Pfizer. I don't trust Moderna. I don't trust Johnson & Johnson because of their pending lawsuits. So I was like, let me just back up. Can, we, can, can you respect that? They did not want to appreciate and respect my religious exemption, so they let me go. And I said, well, I'm not going to do it until I have more information. Right. I refuse to do that. And you should understand, historically, why I wouldn't. And plus, you're not giving me any assurances. There's no legal, there's no medical assurances of what might happen to me if I took this new experimental vaccination that deals with mRNA and speak, you know, messenger RNA, talking to my DNA, and I haven't been sick throughout this whole thing, and you want me to take this, but no assurances as to what they would do for me if my health was adversely affected. Right. So I could not do it, and um, they legally protected themselves, and I said goodbye. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and if you read my Substack article, I do give credit to Blue at the bottom of my last article, we missed our Muhammad Ali moment. That was Blue's phrase that I had to steal for the title of my last article because <laughs> I agree with him. You know, it was a key interval in history where we had to stand up and say no 
And so many folks that I knew to be resistors just didn't resist. And like some kind of weird zombie movie almost mm. just went along for the ride. But um, yeah, we're not going to get into the full range of that discussion here. <laughs> That's another conversation. Yeah, right? exactly. Another day. <laughs> and on another occasion, we will. But um, let's hit, let's talk to Phil. He's on the line. How are you doing today, Phil? Oh, very well, Jeremiah. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, my pleasure. What do you have to say for uh, today? Well, um, let's see. I really appreciate this conversation. I see uh, Craig Blue is spelled with a K. Yeah, on the, right. Uh, Substack. There you go. R A I G. Yeah, check him out yeah, on Instagram. My, my brother is a is a brilliant visual artist, by the way. So Thank he's you. expressing all of these um, great ideas, but he's just he's like a, a modern day Rembrandt. <laughs> you know, thank you. He very paints much. like a fine art. He is, he, well, I mean, he's a multimedia artist. He's a brilliant painter, illustrator, and sculptor, and conceptual artist. So. Thank you. Um, yeah, he, uh, you know, be in touch with him. Let him paint a, a mural somewhere <laughs> because um, nice. he's he's a brilliant artist. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I'll look for him on Instagram, and I urge all the other listeners uh, uh, and, and greetings to the PRN family. Um, so I wanted to touch on uh, the two-party dictatorship, mm -hmm. uh, the importance of participating in bourgeois elections, at least as far as we understand from the analysis from Rosa Luxemburg, a revolutionary martyr uh, that we might we probably identify with in terms of class struggle from the German Revolution. Uh, the, the political flip going on right now that's moving black and brown people into the Republican Party um, after they're disappointed with Obama and the woke psyop. Um, so, good we, way to we, put it. <laughs> yeah. So this woke thing. Um, some people understand what's going on with the with the hijacking of the term woke, and then some people do not. And people that I admire also on PRN, for example, play lots of videos that are critical of the woke movement, and a lot of them make very good points, for example, in the previous hour on PRN. Um, but then implicitly or explicitly in these commentaries against the woke movement, they will say implicitly or explicitly that this is coming from the left or the far left or the hard left. But as we've spoken before, Jeremiah, people are conflating Democrat party types, which are liberals. These are people who have no anti-capitalist analysis. Right. These are not lefties. Great job, Phil. But they're, well yeah, but they're conflating these Democrat types that are, that are not leftists with leftists. And this has been going on, as we've discussed before, in the, in the corporate media for years, and to the point that even independent media and alternative media now speak about liberals and Democrats as if they are left. And that's just incorrect. Um, so uh, I think we have to qualify this when we do talk about the woke movement and critique it and say, like, look, you know, this is a corporate agenda coming down through the corporate media from the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, and these types of global power elite groups. And good people like uh, James Corbett on the Corbett Report, they have gone into extensive analysis about how all of this, the, the gender thing and the uh, transgender uh, issues are being weaponized. Um, and they point out the documents where they talk about this. And so we need to be very clear that this is not an organic movement the, the whole woke thing, the transgender movements. Um, even Kurt Metzger on the Jimmy Dore show has articulated this point um, once or twice that 
the only reason the blue hairs, quote unquote, blue hairs and the um, inarticulate uh, minority representatives of transgender movements, the only reason that they are given such a big platform is because the corporate media gives them a big platform. So mm. it's like, yes, our civil rights movements has degenerated. Yes, it's people are too cool for school now, but there are people that are still very articulate. For example, nobody's talking to, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the, the Dr. Uh, Alexander, uh, Michelle Alexander. Right, Michelle you know, Alexander get, mentioned her earlier. Real yes. un- yeah. Before the, we the went on The media's not interviewing her, putting her on blast. That's interesting. They're interviewing yeah. people no. that... That are making yeah. lousy Yeah, I'm sorry, Phil. You know then, what? We're 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 specifically yeah. running out of time. I, I hate to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. I really do. I no, want to have like uh, so maybe yeah. they'll give me like a midnight show and I'll stay on till three in the morning or something. <laughs> but I'll leave it right there. Thank but, you. But so but much. thank you so much, Phil. You made some excellent points. Um this is the baseline yeah. with Jeremiah Hosea. We gotta wrap it up. Um okay. Okay. my website is jeremiahhosea.com. Please check out my substack. Just search my name out, J E R E M I A H. H-O-S-E-A. Please subscribe to my Substack. Be a paid subscriber. Got two young kids to feed. But if not, be a free subscriber. I really dig that too. And send me an email if there's anything you want to mention to me, anything that I should be aware of. I want to be in contact with the community. We want to produce documentaries. We want to Mm -hmm. do positive things in a community-oriented fashion. So uh, thank you again for joining us. And take a listen to this song from my... uh, original catalog this is my song called way with words it features some wonderful string work among other things